You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. The 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. Welcome back to another Western Rookie Podcast episode. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and today I've got two buddies on the call, Justice Nielsen and Caleb. I'm going to say Latir. Latir? You're going to have to correct me on that one, Caleb, but these two guys are actually heading out looking for some deer tonight as well as doing this podcast. How are you guys doing? Living the dream. Living the dream. How bad did I pronounce your last name, Caleb? Not bad at all. It was actually one of the best that I've heard. How do you it's pronounce Latier. it? Okay. Latier, yeah. Awesome. So, you guys are heading out. You're going to go find a meal deer tonight, it sounds like. That's the plan. <laughs> so, I, I are you guys doing rifle meal deer yet, or is it still archery season down there in Utah? Uh, we're archery hunting. I think rifle season starts soon, but... We're a couple of purebred archery hunters, so. <laughs> okay. Not to lie, we're not opposed to shooting anything with a gun at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, I think it's fun. I think it's more fun to shoot anything with a bow. But when rifle season comes around, I pick up a rifle, too. Oh, yeah, I'll tell you right now, based off of how our archery season has been going so far, I've been kicking myself for not getting a rifle tag. Yeah, I mean, it's October 26th, and, and if you're still looking for a meal deer, it looks like you've had a couple months of uh, of some grind going on. Yeah, so Utah's actually super cool the way they run run their uh, archery tag. So season starts August 19th, goes until September 15th, um, but then it rolls over into what's called the extended season. So in Utah, you can virtually hunt mule deer with a bow from August 19th until the end of November in in certain units. Oh, nice. And so then you're probably getting into the rut then, too, if you can hunt into November? Yeah. So there's like we've seen a little pre-rut action, um, nothing crazy yet. I, I'm thinking it's probably going to be another week, week and a half before we start seeing any like legit rut action. Um, but like you can hunt mule deer peak rut with your bow here in Utah. Which does that make it easier or does that just make it harder? Cause they move all day long and it's harder to put them to bed and get a stock in. Um, neither of us have ever, ever hunted mule deer with our bows in the rut. So I can't say easier or harder, but based off of what I've seen makes it a lot easier because those bucks get a little stupid. If you <laughs> pull the does and you, pretty much killed the deer yeah that certainly helps i mean i hope you guys find one are you guys looking for a certain size mule deer or at this point in the game are you just looking for like a four point um i've i've still got a a hard number that i'm trying to hit caleb is uh yeah i'm not that big anymore (laughs) (laughs) yeah so what's your hard number then uh my, my number is 160 this year, and the only exception to that is if it's, like, just a super, super old deer that's addressed or just, like, an absolute freak, like, cat. I'd shoot 
either of those here under 160. But uh, if it's, you know, if it's a, a mature buck, like I'm, I'm not going to shoot a, a two and a half or a three and a half year old buck just to, just to kill a deer. Yeah. No, I hear you. That's kind of where I'm at with mule deer. Probably not. I'd shoot a few bucks in between that two and a half and 160. I'll, I got to admit, but I'm at the point now where I've shot a couple two and a half year old mule deer and a three and a half old mule deer, and I'm just I'm tired of shooting two and a half year old deer. Like I've I've eaten a lot of buck tags the last few years just because I don't want to shoot any more two and a half year olds. Yeah, and that's like I don't want anyone to think that I'm like some mighty mule deer hunter like the biggest buck that i've ever killed is 160 um so like i'm in a position i don't like desperately need the meat um and i've killed enough animals that like there's there's no point in just shooting a deer just to shoot a deer yeah and like kind of the point of this extended hunt in utah is to ag fields and really populated areas so the whole point of that you saw has it instead of using it just to keep the deer from moving into neighborhoods, these ag fields and stuff. So it's not like they're not really geared towards herd management. Mm. Yeah, trying to keep them from like destroying crops and depredation and and you know getting on yeah. private land and just holding up on private land all winter long. Yep. That's pretty cool, though. I mean, there's some states like Colorado. You get the seven days and that's it for like rifle. I think archery's a little bit longer, but you know, once the season's over, the season's over, and you can't even go back with a different weapon. Yep, yeah, and that's like I think both Caleb and I we, we grew up in Colorado together. Um, and I mean archery season, like Colorado runs on a five-year cycle for their season dates. So right now they're in their later season dates. So archery season is September 2nd to September 30th, and if you don't kill an animal within that time frame, then then you then you don't. Your tag goes unnotched. Yeah, that's a bummer. So I was going to ask, how did you guys meet? Did you guys go to high school together? Have you been hunting your entire lives together? Because it's yeah, kind of hard to find a buddy that's on the same page as you with Western hunting. Yeah, we uh, – so – it's funny, we tease our moms all the time because our moms have known each other since we were like seven years old. Um, but Caleb and I became really, really good friends in the eighth grade. Um, and we joke that our friendship blossomed from a mutual hate English teacher. <laughs> I can feel that. I've never had an English teacher that I liked. <laughs> And I've, I was going to say, I've taken English from, I don't know, whenever you start seventh grade to through college, and every single one of them I hated. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a different special. breed of person to become an English teacher. <laughs> yeah. I mean, definitely different than me. I feel like, you know, like three of our interests, if you drew a circle and like an English teacher's interest, that bubble, those two bubbles just never intersect. Yeah, no, the uh, the only English teacher I ever, ever liked, because she, uh, she understood football and enjoyed football, and that was the only thing we would ever talk about. <laughs> That's funny. I was going to say, but one of my favorite teachers was a Spanish teacher, but he was also our linebackers coach, and he loved hunting, so... I hung out with Heck him at yeah. practice. We hung out in the weight room. I mean, the dude was, like, huge and freakishly strong. <laughs> just super fit, like a hulking. Like, he looks like The Rock, but from the Midwest, not Hawaii or Samoa. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, he's a Spanish teacher, just a bro. So I got along with him way better than, like, all English teachers combined. Yeah, that's good. So, but, yeah, so – I was, I was the next question I was going to go with. We we're talking about like how the Colorado seasons are kind of constricted. If you draw an archery tag, you can't hunt rifle. If you draw a rifle, you can't you can't go with your bow. You know, if you don't shoot one in the timeline, you're done. Is that a part of the reason why you guys moved to Utah, or did something else bring you out to that state? No, uh, actually, I'll be honest. I just based off of this year, I much prefer hunting in Colorado to Utah. Um, and it's nice. So, like, in Colorado, if 
like if you have a rifle tag you can still hunt with a bow um but like if you have an archery tag you can't hunt with a muzzle loader or a rifle or a crossbow um do you so have like to I've, hunt in the same season though like the same seven days yep yeah so you're still constricted those, those season days yeah um which i, I, I don't know it, it bugs some guys it, it doesn't really doesn't really bug me much um yeah, Colorado is definitely a like fantastic state to, to grow up in. It's one of the best western states to hunt in my opinion. Um Yeah, so I mean it was it that didn't play any role in moving to Utah. I actually moved to Utah um originally to go to flight school and then I got a job with King's Camo. I'm the social media manager for King's Camo. And uh so doing that full time now, and Caleb is in school. Yeah, I moved here for school, but it's not a bad place to be. Utah's nice too. Yeah. I actually moved from Colorado when I was 16. I moved to Alaska, and that is the best Western state <laughs> for hunting. Yeah, that's um. That's a huge jump. I mean, especially at 16. Was that like a, your whole family moved to Alaska? Because not many 16-year-olds yeah. are moving across country by themselves. Yeah, not many. It's been my dad's dream to live there. Oh, nice. So is I, I assume he's still there then? Yeah, my family's still there. Okay. Oh, that's like the... That's like the best of both worlds because now you can go and have like a a resident guide, right? So you can still hunt basically anything in Alaska without having to go get an outfitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I used to have to pay the non-resident prices with clothes, but it's a lot cheaper than hiring a guide for sure. Well, oh my, yeah, of course. So what's a moose tag, a non-resident moose tag cost in Alaska right now? Like 1200 bucks. Yeah, I want to pay 1200 bucks. Okay, so $1,200. I've heard rumors that if you want to go to, like, the Primo, Yukon outfitted hunts, like, basically Jim Shockey's outfitter, it's, like, $60,000 now for a moose. What was that number? 60000 It's not quite that steep. You can do a good moose hunt for about 25 to 30 Oh, but... okay. But is that, like, prime Yukon... Moose, or is that just anywhere in Alaska? Yeah, I'm talking just. I'm not. I'm talking just about the moose. I'm sure, like sixty grand, you can get an all-inclusive lodge, and they'll cook you meals. Yeah. and staying in like a really nice place and stuff. Right. Um, but as far as like killing a trophy moose goes, you can do it for around thirty grand. Yeah, that's the well. Yeah, so you got a huge, huge advantage there. Um, I was recently yeah. looking at the non-resident self-guided units where you can hunt moose as a non-resident without hiring an outfitter or having like a nexus resident that takes you out. And I know it's going to be hard and I know it's still not cheap to fly to Alaska, hire a bush plane, you know, all the gear, but I could still do that probably at least six times before I get to the cost of an outfitter. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's pretty popular. You know, my, I actually worked for a hunting outfitter a little bit while I was up there and, we would sell a lot of packs, like DIY packages, where we just we'll fly you, and we'll give you a tent and all the stuff you need. People had a lot of fun doing that; had a lot of success still. Um, Alaska is just so game rich that it's hard to mess up hunting in Alaska. Well, everything except the game rich grizzly bears or brown bears. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when you were doing the guiding stuff or the outfitting stuff in Alaska, or just when you were up there in general hunting, how obviously you have to be bear aware everywhere, right? You know, it's Alaska. It's just like hunting, you know, outside of Yellowstone or up by a glacier in Montana. There's grizzly bears there. You got to be bear aware. But so like how often were you seeing bears or having like sketchy encounters with bears? Like you shot a moose and then their bear showed up and then you're like, oh, great. Now I got to you know, whatever, haze this bear off or leave the mood. You know, how often did it actually happen where there was a problem? Um, Me, personally, I've never had a sketchy bear encounter when I wasn't 
hunting bears. And actually, hunting bears themselves, I've never really had a sketchy encounter. I've had, Justice has had one. Um, when he came up to Alaska, we were hunting different areas, but he can tell you about that. But honestly, there's, they keep their distance. Um, people tell stories. It's popular, but me personally, I've never had any super threatening experiences. Yeah, but you're seeing them, right? Like, you're seeing brown yeah, bears. Oh, yeah, you're seeing them all the time. Yeah. Every time you go out, pretty much, you're seeing bears. That's crazy. And so, I I assume it was, that was going to be the answer. So, like, probably not something you want to do solo, or a lot, most people probably don't want to be doing it solo, you know, strength and numb. This episode is brought to you by Steelhead Outdoors. From the moment I first saw a Steelhead Outdoor safe, I knew I was going to order one. The ability to customize the color, the configuration, and most importantly, the ability to move and assemble my safe panel by panel makes Steelhead Outdoors the clear winner when it comes to gun safes. And if you haven't ordered a Steelhead Outdoor gun safe yet, you can still benefit from their innovation and creativity because the guys over at Steelhead have designed some awesome accessories. Their case keeper allows you to hang all of your hunting caps and gun cases off the side of your safe, and it keeps your hunting room looking clean and organized. Or my favorite is the bow keeper that lets me hang my bow off the side of my safe so me and my wife can walk into our safe room, hang up our bows after shooting in the backyard, and not have to worry about the hassle of putting our bows back in the case every time. Both the bow keeper and case keeper are magnetic and work with any safe, which means you can use them now with your current safe, and when the time comes to order your Steelhead Outdoors gun safe, you'll already have all the accessories you need. Head over to SteelheadOutdoors.com to order your bow keeper and case keeper today. Members go with like two or three buddies so you're always with like at least a buddy maybe you're all four hunting together if something happens like you know you got four people like there's four cans of pepper spray and you know four shotguns yeah yeah we always carry a 10 mil uh, on our chest when we go out and i got a 4570 that if i'm not the one hunting i'll just carry the 4570 yeah i was bigger than a 10 mil (laughs) Right, yeah, ten mil's great if you have to like carry a bow or a rifle. Yeah, but yeah, I would switch to a sh- a shot. Well, I don't know, forty-five seventy versus like a twelve-gauge slug or buckshot. That would be a tough one. The thing I like about the twelve-gauge is it's a semi-auto. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people like to carry um, little short pump-action twelve-gauge just because pump-action never jams. Oh. The last thing you want is a, a shotgun jamming on you with bears. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. But, yeah, that's what I kind of figured. And so I'm like, well, why don't you just, like, suck it up and do it DIY? And if you just made that, like, your, you know, every three-year hunt and you did it ten times in your life, you'd probably end up shooting, like, three or four nice bulls. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's nice moose in Alaska for sure. People do it every year. They kill 60-inch-plus moose. So when you when I have a question for you, I have you guys have either of you actually shot a moose and had to pack it out? Uh, we've never shot moose, but we both packed out moose. Okay, for other so people. <laughs> oh, well, that's a bummer. You had to do all the work without the reward. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, because you were outfitting. So I mean, obviously, people were shooting moose. So yeah. How much does your average, let's just say a 50-inch moose, because that's a lot of times the, the minimum for, like, a non-resident, or, like, a lot of the units have, like, a minimum size requirement, right? Yeah. So, 50-inch moose. What is your average, like, true hind quarter weigh or your front quarter on that moose that big? Uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah, at least a lot. Well, in the thing, so you can't even do uh, the corners. Um, we usually I'm cutting the hind quarter in half. I'd say it's close to 150, 200 pounds for a hind quarter on a Pelasgian Oh, really? So they are that big? Because I was gonna say like everyone loves to say that like an elk hind quarter is 100 pounds. Uh, on uh, like on a big. 
well, that's so that's where I was going with this. I shot an eight and a half year old girl in North Dakota that was living on like corn and grain all summer long. And this thing was huge. It was the biggest elk oh, I've ever yeah. seen in my life. And I know they get older, like there's twelve year old bulls. But I'm just saying eight and a half's pretty big. And I weighed both yeah. nine quarters and they were both exactly eighty two pounds. So I'm like, Yeah, yeah the, the Raycorn you shot doesn't have hundred a hundred pound rear quarters. Yeah, a, a lot of guys that come out west um, that just aren't used to packing that amount of weight. Right. Like, a, a lot of guys will have a 65, 70-pound pack, and in the stories it's always, oh, I had a 100, 110-pound pack. <laughs> yeah, and no, they love to say that. And it, it probably does feel like it, which is crazy because the year I had that tag, I trained – my tail off I lost like 46 pounds in six months I trained harder than I've ever trained I left my pack frame at the gym I knew the owner so I was like hey can I just throw this underneath the boxing ring and when I want to train like pack outs I can just wear it he's like yeah I don't care and so I'd lift weights and then I'd do cardio afterwards I'd go grab my pack frame and I'd just add plates and like every week I'd add more plates until the point where I was putting three 45 pound plates on a pack frame and hitting either the treadmill or i'd do like a plate and a half and do the stair climber and so i trained yeah, for it to do but like the other thing that a lot of guys don't realize is like so much different than a quarter does what was that you cut out for a second oh i said the thing that a lot of guys don't realize is a quarter carries so much than like a plate does. Like you could put a 45 pound plate in your pack and that 45 pound plate will feel better than 45 pounds of, of meat will. Oh yeah. It like sloshes around, moves around. Yeah. And it stays so close to your, your back that it, it's like center of gravity. It, it's like the ideal weight to pack, but it was still like, better than nothing i know they there's companies out there now that make like water jugs that are shaped like moose quarters and you fill them with water and so it's supposed to be like sloshy and and i'm like all right well that's pretty cool but where i was going with that is when i put those rear quarters on they felt so light i took my pack off and on the first trip out i put a rear and a front and i weighed them when i got home because i was really curious what it was going to be it was 146 pounds of meat the, like the front game bag weighed 64 and the rear game bags weighed 82. They're almost exactly the same side to side, which the only thing that tells you is obviously we quartered it the same way. But then the pack frame, I'm guessing, weighs like, I don't know, a pound or two, maybe three, four pounds. And so you round it rough figures. It was a true 150-pound pack out because I weighed everything. And it felt so good. It felt so light. I gave my dad one of the – one I had two trekking poles. I gave one to my dad, and I gave the other one to my mom because my they were for, they were just hanging out in the area since it was a once in a lifetime tag. But they don't like my mom doesn't hike mountains, so I'm like, here, mom, you take a trekking pole, like, don't fall over. And then yeah. dad dad was carrying out the the back straps for me, which was like 40 pounds, which he didn't train, so that's a lot of weight for him. And so I I didn't even have trekking poles, and I they were like everyone's moving slow, right? I had a bunch of weight. They weren't really you know, trained for the, like the, it's hills, not mountains in North Dakota, but so we're up, but I was yeah. just keeping up with them. Well, fast forward yeah. a couple of years, like yeah. now when I haven't trained that hard, I put on one rear elk and I'm like, God, this kind of feels heavy. <laughs> like it's a huge difference. Yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I'll tell you, I need to hop on your uh, training regimen because I've never put 150 pounds on my back and been like, Oh, this feels good. <laughs> well, I'm not a small person, to be fair. So well, I am. <laughs> yeah, like I'm. I'm six two right now. I'm like six two two seventy five. So I'm a big person. So putting that much weight on me is only still like half my body weight. And for you, it'd probably be exactly your body weight. So it's a huge yeah. difference. Yeah, I. Uh, I'm five nine, Yeah, so you'd be at like ninety five percent of your body weight. Yeah, yeah, like the the heaviest pack out I've ever had, I was probably right at that 
150, maybe 160 mark. Um, and and it was it was not fun. Yeah, especially if it's steep. My my pack out was not hard terrain. It so you got to keep that in mind. Like I, yeah. it was North Dakota. It was like front country. It was rolling hills basically. Um, oh yeah, a, that's a huge plus. It was a little over a mile, but yeah, it was it was pretty. It was a pretty easy mile as far as packing out goes. So it like it. I wouldn't do that with like a yeah. moose in Alaska. That's for sure. Oh yeah, Alaska miles are a lot different than lower forty-eight miles. Well, yeah. So what do you do to pack out a moose? Because I've heard that same rule where you can't debone, you can't do it boneless. You have to bring the bone out with the quarter. Um, and for like, if you're an outfitter, yeah, maybe you have horses or maybe you have some type of like all-terrain vehicle, those eight-wheeled whatever they're called. Um, but the Argos, if, yeah, those are popular. Yeah, if you have an Argo, yeah, obviously that's different. You can drive those things almost anywhere. But but if you're doing it the DIY style, flying in non-resident, how do most people get that court? Like, how do pe- most people get the pack out? Uh, usually they just go to hell and back to get it out. Yeah. Um, but also, moose in the rut are pretty easy to call. Especially in a lot when you're in the middle of nowhere in Alaska, they're never really call shy. Um, our call is pretty simple, so we would always aim to call them as close to the lake as we could. Mm. So, like there's, there'll be bull moose, and we'll have them well within range, but we're like a mile from the lake, and we'll just like keep calling and walking backwards, walking towards the lake, getting the moose to follow us. And then just shoot them on the lake so that the float plane can come pick them up right off the lake, and we don't have to pack them out. We just have to butcher them. Yeah, that's okay. So that sounds like a way to go. And then if you do have to do like any amount of packing out, if you have multiple people, is the way to do it. Like, get a log and tie a quarter to a log, and then like two people, like use teamwork. Yeah, we would usually have enough people in our hunting camp that we could just all, all had pack frames and you know some people just stay on the carcass butchering it and we're taking loads to the lake while they're still butchering the rest of it so it's just it's it's a grind for sure there's nothing easy about it yeah yeah that's what i've heard and that's what i'm a little bit nervous about i'd have to train harder i just have to get back into that training regimen and i'd have to get to like four plates on a pack frame <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But yeah. So it's, how on them as close Oh, sorry, the, go ahead. The lake as you can. Yeah. I didn't know that they were that callable. So like when you're elk hunting, usually you're like if you can get them within bow range, like shoot now, right? You're n- no one is ever like getting a bull elk to follow them back down the mountain so they can shoot them by the road because that just doesn't work. Right, they're yeah. they're gonna get like sketched out. I mean, in theory, it would work because they chase each other out around the mountains. But they're pretty smart when you're trying to call them, right? Like so many things can go wrong. You're not you're not gonna like risk <laughs> risk it to try to get this elk to follow you back to camp, right? So I never really thought of that for the moose. That's a great idea. Yeah, it makes it so much easier. <laughs> that does make it easier. So when there's the a lot of the units up in Alaska for moose hunting. They have like two criteria, right? Like it either has to be so wide or it has to have so many brow points, right? Or brow tines. Yeah. To be legal. So obviously, if you're a non-resident, I think a lot of people, from what I've researched, really focused on the the brow tines one because that's easy to like make sure it's correct. You know. Yeah, versus like, is this a 49-inch moose or a 52-inch moose? I don't know. Let's shoot it and find out and pay the fine. Right? <laughs> no one's going to do that. And so I've always heard, like, people talk about that, like, oh, is he legal or is he not? How often is someone going up there, like, DIY, and it's, like, on the other end of the spectrum, like, they're shooting a 72-inch moose? Yeah, I mean, it happens. People, it's really hard to judge an animal, but so big because they just look big even if it's like a 60 inch moose if it's your first time seeing alaska yukon moose i think it's a monster and well oh, it's yeah it's definitely hard to judge based off of which yeah i'm never uh, gonna be good at judging moose with i'm sure 
I'm just curious yeah, though, like, are moose of that caliber all over Alaska? Like, not like one behind every tree, but like if you looked at a map of Alaska, and and I said circle the area that like 70 inch moose could be found. Is it the entire state, or is it just in like localized parts of Alaska? Um, I would say most units, not all units in Alaska have 70 inch moose. Yeah. That's I mean, just, probably not like the units around Anchorage that are close to town. They don't really grow big because people shoot them like crazy out there. But if you're like, if you're flying out, there's a 70 inch moose in your unit for sure. If you're looking forward to another fall of hunting big bucks, but you're tired of freezing your tail off or getting busted by does, head over to maverickhunting.com and check out their Maverick and Booner blinds. Both series are incredibly easy to set up and get out in the woods. I set up two of the six-panel blinds in the same week. And whether your favorite spot is on a field edge or way back in the sanctuary, you can have a hard-sided blind in your favorite spot this season. Keep the elements out and you're sent in with a Maverick hunting blind. The best part is Maverick blinds ship out of their factory in just one or two days, which means you still have plenty of time to get a comfortable blind set up before the cold weather arrives and those big bucks are cruising through your spots. Go to maverickhunting.com and use the code WESTERNROOKIE, that's one word, to save 10%. That's right, 10% on your Maverick hunting blinds. Yeah, not that I would (laughs) hold out. Like, yeah, I'm going to pass this 4.50-inch moose because I might find a 70 doing DIY. I'm definitely not going to be doing that. If I ever did (laughs) save up enough money to go guided, though, then I would probably be like, well, let's try to look for, like, a really nice one. Yeah, like 65, 70 after night. I have a buddy. Well, it's hard to say he's a buddy. We're acquaintances. We're friendly, but we don't like hang out, right? I mean, that's just the bummer. But he has done the Alaskan Yukon moose, and he shot one with his bow. And he's also not a tall person. I would say maybe more like average, like that 5'9", 5'10". And he has a picture of the bull's antlers on his pack sideways. And the, like, right antler was almost dragging on the ground. And he was bent over a little bit, too. And it was almost dragging on the ground. That's how wide it was. Yeah. I really wish I remembered the number. But it was, there's no way it was a 60-inch moose. It was, you know, significantly larger than that. (laughs) Yeah, that's nice. That's a nice bull, man. Yeah, and he went. That's the appeal of an Alaska Yukon moose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would probably be the heaviest pack out, though, right? I mean, if you're gonna shoulder mount an Alaskan Yukon moose, you're taking that much hide. The head is huge. The antlers are huge. It's probably wet, so the hide's filled with water. That's got to be the heaviest load. Yeah, it's not light. It's definitely not. There's also, like, I mean, people shooting 10-foot 10, 10 brown bears on Kodiak. You know, you're hiking out of a whole hide of a brown bear. They got more hair and fat than anything else. Yeah, that... The hide would, is definitely one of them. That would be another brutal pack out, especially because you're going right through, like, dozens of other brown bears, probably. Yeah, a lot of people will cut them in half and just trust their taxidermist to sew it back together the right way. Ooh, I don't know. Once in a lifetime hunt like that, I don't know if I'm going to cut the hide in half and hope my taxidermist can fix it. <laughs> yeah, that makes two of us. That would be, that's a lot of faith in your taxidermist, I'll tell you what. Now, if you were a taxidermist, maybe you would be like, yeah, I know I can fix this. Like, let's just cut it in half. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. So I've heard, we had a guy on the podcast that shot a Kodiak bear and, or was it a Fogniac? I can't remember. It was a coastal brown bear and he couldn't eat it and he really wanted to eat it. He didn't under, like going into it, he thought he was going to be able to take the meat. And then the guide's like, oh no, you can't eat these things. They're full of worms. And he's like, really? And he goes, yeah, cut into its meat, you know, now that it's skinned and he cut into it and it was just like solid worms, which he said was disgusting. Yeah. No, they're not. Is, They're not good. Is that the same for interior bears? 
Um, it's a little less because they're not eating like the fish that they like raw decayed salmon like the coastal brown bears are, but um, they are eating rotten carcasses and stuff. So most people don't bother with the meat. That's that's got to be. I don't know. I don't know what I think about that. Because, like, as a hunter, I like eating what I shoot. And a lot of people, you know, that's why they hunt. No one, like, goes out there to waste game. And then for an animal like that, like, it's, like, a huge animal, like a magnificent animal. And then to shoot it and not be able to eat it, I'm a little conflicted. But then I know what happens when you don't hunt them. You know, if you hunt everything else but the grizzly bears, then the grizzlies and brown bears, their population just explodes. And now you're seeing that with, like, British Columbia since they can't hunt them anymore. They're everywhere. They finally just opened it back up. They did? This year, next year. Yeah. Because you just can't not kill them. But, right. So it's got to be very conflicting. Uh, yeah. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game does a good job. They, like, in the reg book, they they talk about it, how, you know, after... And you, you are required to salvage meat before, I think it's June 1st, on bears, before they've been eating all the fish and and raw and stuff when they've just come out of hybrid pretty clean oh really bears that people eat yeah but after june 1st you're no longer required to salvage any meat so department of fish and game has a whole thing about it about the worms and that's crazy so the predator management i would assume that once a bear gets worms it's got worms for life but you're saying once they hibernate it kind of like resets them yeah they just like during hibernation, I'm sure the worms die and they just. Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. I would have assumed that they had, once you get worms, you have worms for life. And but at least, yeah. But you, most people aren't hunting brown bears in the spring, right? Or do you hunt brown bears? Oh, uh, some people do. Yeah. Okay. Um, but even then, most people they still say you gotta cook the meat really good, like. Like, you would cook pork. Well, I knew that anyway because they're predators and you don't want to get trichinosis. Yeah. So, yeah, you're not doing, like, medium-rare bear steaks. No. <laughs> no. I feel like most people just make tacos with their bears. <laughs> yeah, hamburgers and tacos. Well, even a hamburger is a little – well, unless you mean, like, ground bear. But, like, if you – Yeah, just ground bear. Like, a burger patty, that's even a little risky – yeah, I'm doing, like, stews. I'm going to cook this at 212 degrees for an afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, that's awesome. So now that you're back from Alaska, do you go? Do you have any plans to go back up there and hunt with your parents, or is that, like, a regular thing for you? I go back every summer. I work as a fishing guide up there. So I go back and fish, and then I usually pick up a black bear tag because they're pretty – they're relatively cheap compared to every other tag up there. Mm. Oh, me and my dad have run run baits every spring since we've been up there, so I just usually help him run the baits and then end up shooting a black bear off of one. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, that sounds like kind of a fun summer. I I do want to get up there, do some fishing in the summer. I don't know why, but for some reason, when I watch the Meat Eater episodes, I just love the, like, shrimp pots and the crab pots. Oh, yeah. I don't, know, I don't know why I love it so much. I feel like it's because, like, I'm really big in, like, investing and, like, having money grow when you're not doing anything. And I kind of feel like that's the same way with, like, a shrimp pot. Is like, you put it down, and then you can go off and go fishing, or you could go do whatever you want to do, and you're catching shrimp. And then you just come back and check your shrimp pot. And so maybe that's yep. why I don't know, but I, like, it's like I would want to like my perfect day would be to get up in the morning, probably see a brown bear on the deck and shit my pants, <laughs> and then and then we go out and we set a bunch of shrimp pots and crab pots and then we go fishing whatever I don't even care salmon halibut rock whatever, and then we come home and like check our shrimp pots and have this delicious seafood for supper. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what we do up there. It's it's a sportsman's paradise for sure. Yeah, that does sound. It, I mean, Alaska. If you if it if it wasn't so far away, 
like it to move to Alaska is like a really change in your life there, especially if you have like a family and kids and it, I mean, yeah, big time jobs, you know, obviously you got to get a job in Alaska and I suppose now it's getting a lot easier since everyone's working remote, but in general, I think it's going to be a pretty hard thing to swing for most folks. Yeah. The nice thing though about Alaska is like virtually every job pays more in Alaska than it does in the lower 48. Really? But does that mean that everything costs more, too, so you're just back to square one? I mean, cost of living is higher, but... It's cheaper than Hawaii or California. Yeah, like, it's it's cheaper to live in in Anchorage, Alaska, than it is to live in pretty much any part of California or Hawaii. Interesting. Might have to look into this. I think it would be a great spot to get, like, a fishing shack. That's... Oh, yeah. That's a dream of mine because I think you can still get – I mean, I think it got popular and it, prices are probably going up. But comparatively, I think you can still get, like, a pretty good deal, especially if you have, like, three or four buddies that are all like, yeah, let's buy it together and then we'll just figure out maybe we'll all go together, maybe I'll go this week, you go next week. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. That's like – or you could do the uh, the seasonal gold mining. Like, I was up in Nome in August and – uh virtually every guy that I talked to in Nome lived in the lower 48, but they would go up for four months out of the year, literally just to mine for gold on the Bering Sea. Did they find gold? (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) some of them, yes, some of them, no. Um, Talked with one guy, and he said it took him 30 consecutive years before he broke even. Um, but once he broke even, then he started making a lot of money. Dude, I think I'm going to stick but, with engineering. <laughs> yeah. 30 years to break even is a long, long time. Yeah. No. And I don't want to be wasting my time in Alaska working. I mean, that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> oh. What kind of engineer are you? I'm an electrical engineer. So, um, oh, yeah. I mean, the- the oil field's huge up there. They got so many engineers in Alaska. Well, I bet, yeah, pet- all... petroleum engineers up there are probably making half a million dollars. I mean, they make, yeah, they make, they, they make stupid Geologists money. Geologists make a lot. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but then you, like, you got to live in an oil field, and everyone knows that's <laughs> the highest quality of life. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Especially in Alaska. I suppose it's probably worse in Alaska, yeah. I've only seen, like, oil fields in, like, western North Dakota, and people talk about how sketchy it is there. I mean, I'm sure it's worse. Everything about Alaska is probably worse. The weather's harsher, more remote, more, you know, lonely, nothing to do, no one to hang out with except your oil field buddies that you just got done chewing out because something happened on the job. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Oh, yeah. You can always go hang out with all the natives, too, if you want. Yeah. No, I think Alaska would be a great spot to start getting getting comfortable with, going out there, maybe, like, go and do a fishing trip and then maybe do, like, a spring bear. And, you know, once you kind of figure out the travel and the logistics, then maybe start doing that whole non-resident self-guided moose hunt. Because I think, like, everyone wants to shoot a moose, and there's just not a lot of good options for it, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Alaska is definitely your best option for moose far as like acquiring a tag and acquiring the moose yep yeah <laughs> like you can get i mean yeah if you draw moose tags in the lower 48 you you're you're in good spot like you're probably going to shoot a moose but it's probably not going to be that big no yeah, yeah. Well, shyrus Shy, like shyrus moose are freaking enormous and alaska yukon moose make shyrus moose look small yeah, that's interesting, you know, like, because I've seen, does Montana have Shira's moose, or do they have Canadian moose? Oh, they have Shira's moose in Montana. Okay, I have been up close to some bulls in Montana elk hunting, and some cows, and when I mean close, I mean like 40 yards to some cows, and like 60 yards to a one bull in particular, he was massive. I mean, he was, I mean, the paddles I would maybe say like a forty or fifty inch moose. Um, That's pretty big for a shiras. Yeah, it was a huge shiras. I'm just kind of comparing. Like, I don't know. Obviously, I didn't get close enough to measure them, but 
<laughs> he was at like 60 yards. And we're like, oh, that's so cool. Me and my brother, we kind of sneaked into a meadow, and he was in the meadow, so he didn't know we were there yet. And I have a white bow, which was a terrible decision. For anyone listening, don't <laughs> buy a white bow because everything can see it. People will be like, oh, hey, I saw you from two miles away because your bow was shining. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm like, oh, you I'm know. Sure you look cool, though. <laughs> yeah, well, when I was, you know, in yeah, college. He's cool, his bow's sick. Yeah, when I graduated college and bought it, I thought white camo was the coolest thing in the world, so I bought a white bow. Um, so the next one's going to not be white. But I, I know that people from watching, like, outdoor TV will take, like, canoe paddles or sheds of moose and, like, hang them up and, like, you know, like, I don't know what it is. I call it waddling, but, like, you know, that side-to-side head motion. And they, yeah. can, they can, like, call, like, decoy in moose. And so I'm like, oh, my bow's white. You hold it on your head on, you know, on its side. It kind of looks like two antlers. And so I put my bow in my head and I started doing that, right? And we didn't think it was going to work. But that moose looked over at us and just started coming our way. And I'm like, oh, shit, it worked. And we both ran behind (laughs) a tree. Yeah. No, moose are easy to call in, in my opinion. In my experience, in my opinion, moose are one of the easiest animals to call in. Well, ducks are pretty easy. Maybe. I don't know. If moose call in better than ducks, then yeah, I'm I'm on board with you. <laughs> yeah, no, moose are uh, like, same, same thing with Caleb. In my experience, moose are hands down the easiest animal to call to. Nice. They, well, that I've experienced. Um, well, they can hear forever, too. So, like, you could... I've, like, listened to podcasts and I've watched shows where, like, people will call at a moose that's, like, three or four miles away. And sometimes they're like, yeah, we called at him right at last light. Maybe he'll be here in the morning. And the, the next morning, sure enough, he's around. Oh, yeah. And that's, what, that's what you got to do because you're not going to go hike out there. Well, at least I'm not going to hike out there. I mean, Cameron Haynes would probably yeah. do it. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, he did, did yeah. <laughs> but I'm not doing that. I'm Some gonna... of us are not that married. Grind. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna do it your way. I'm gonna call him down to the lake. I'm gonna like like Peter Piper and the you know playing his flute for all the snakes in Ireland. Yeah. I'm gonna do that with the moose, and I'm just gonna. I'm going to enchant him and make him follow me down to the lake, just like you said. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's like a, doing, like, float hunts for moose is really popular. People just, like, float the river. You call, wait for a moose to peek his head out on the bank, and you don't have to pack it out at all. You just throw it in your raft. And... Yeah, the one, the one thing I don't know about that plan is I know moose love to run to water when they're injured. And so I just would be afraid that my moose would die off in the middle of the lake or the river, and now I have to quarter this huge animal underwater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does happen a lot. And there's not much you can do about it. Like, you can't no, move it. Really isn't. You can't really pull it out of the water. I mean, I've heard people that can, like, when they die, like, deep out in the lake, they'll, like, tie onto it with a boat and, like, bring it back to shore. And, like, maybe have a come-along to, like, come along, like, ratchet it up onto the bank of the lake. But if it's in a – if it dies in the middle of a river, you're just screwed, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So, I don't know. It's not just a bridge that you got to cross when you get to it. Yeah, like, I'm obviously going to shoot the moose and hope he just doesn't – I'm going to keep shooting and hopefully I, he – you know, hopefully I dump him right on the edge of the river. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just pray to the good Lord and say – Keep him on dry land. <laughs> right. We had, when I drew the North Dakota tag, They you had a mandatory class you had to take from the game and fish, which is hilarious, right? Because everywhere else you don't have to, you know, do that. But North Dakota, so many people apply for these big three tags. It's elk, moose, and sheep. They're all once in a lifetime. And a lot of people don't even draw, which is kind of sad. You know, they'll apply for 40 years and they'll, you know, they'll pass away before they even get to hunt elk in their own state. But I yeah, drew it. I drew it, and you had to go to this mandatory meeting, and it was for all of the elk, sheep, and moose hunters. So there's like six different meetings you can go to or whatever, so you pick the one that works for you. 
but the reason they do it is because it's all people that whitetail hunt that get these tags that probably have never hunted out in the West before, right? And so they're like, guys, this is different. Like, you're going to need help. You cannot do this alone. You're not going to be able to, you know, drive your pickup most of the time to where your elk dies or your moose dies. And then, and then they're like, for the moose hunters out there, keep shooting your moose. We know that everyone likes to shoot long range in North Dakota and you like, hate your whitetail. You don't want to spoil the meat. He's going to die. You'll just blood trail him. If you do that on a moose, he's going to run a long ways and he's going to run out into the middle of a lake. So keep oh, yeah. shooting. Like they're like, it's like, it was so funny. It's like hunting one Oh one, but it's like a big <laughs> deal for people that have never hunted a big game animal before. And they just drew a tag cause it was $5 to apply in their home state. And all of a sudden now they're going to go from shooting a whitetail on their back 40 to shooting a 1400 pound moose. Oh yeah. It's people like whitetail hunters, especially just don't understand how tough like big Western animals are. Like it is, it, it is absurd. Some of the things that I've seen animals take and just act like nothing happened. Oh, I had a bull that did, I've had two bulls that did that. The eight and a half year old bull, I shot him and I was shooting 200 grain, 300 Winchester short mix, right? So a heavy bullet and a monster caliber, not a monster caliber, but a large caliber, right? And I shot him and the first shot, he stumbled and fell and rolled down a cliff like 30 feet, not really a cliff, but like steep hill. He rolled all the way to the bottom and crashed in a bunch of saplings. And I'm like, oh, perfect. He's done. And he stands back up. And I'm like, oh, well, whatever. And so I just racked another shell. I was like, I'll do this. I'll shoot him again. And so I shoot him. And he just like, like imagine if you, I saw a picture of Brian Shaw on your page. Like imagine yeah. if you like wailed as hard, like you swung from, you know, the back 40 and tried to punch Brian Shaw. And like, what's he going to do? Like barely even recoil. Yeah, Brian would uh, Brian would just laugh and be like, oh, that was cute, buddy. <laughs> right, and so imagine that's what that bull did. I hit him, and he just kind of, you know, hiccuped and kept walking. And I'm like, okay, racked another shell, and he's walking towards me. Hit him again, boom. I mean, these are like full body shots. They're not exiting. He, he just hiccuped again. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like, this is a huge bullet. Like, and it's a good bullet too. It's not like these are some hand loads that I made. They're Hornady ELDXs. And finally, yeah. he, he comes in 75 yards and he turns sideways. And I had to pull another bullet out of my sleeve because I only had three in the clip. And I shoot, and I forgot that you know to adjust my height because he's getting closer. And so I shot for a double lung and I hit him in the spine and dropped him. And I'm like. I can't believe he just ate four bullets without, I mean, or at least three bullets without even barely flinching. And then the fourth one, he just went down because I cut his spine. Like, this is an insane animal. Oh, yeah. No, they're they're ridiculous. Like, I killed a, I killed a mule deer in 2020, um, and I was shooting a 6.5 PRC, 143 grain ELDXs, and uh, I shoot this buck at 300 yards. And I mean, just shoulder punch him, like right, right where you want to shoot him with the rifle. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> sorry, we just saw a buck. Um, Was it a good buck? So, no, he's, uh, he's a little forky. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, so shoot this buck, dump him. I was like, hell yeah, like, gear down. Buck stands back up, like, put another one in. And, uh, boom, shoot him again, dump him a second time. And, like, he, he slides down the snow, wraps up around this tree, and I was like, oh, sweet, like, deer down for sure. Um, and so I, uh, I walk up the hill a little ways where I have service because I was, I was solo hunting, call my dad. I was like, hey, buck down. Um, and, like, just letting him know that I'd, I'd killed a deer. And, uh, he's like, oh, heck yeah, like, Get him packed out. Let me know if you need any help, whatever. And so I, I get back down to my bag, start putting everything away, and I had everything loaded up except the rifle. And uh, I was like, oh, I'm just going to take 
just take another peek just so I can kind of get a line on the best way to walk to him. And uh, I take a look at the tree that he had wrapped up on, and I was like, uh, where's the deer? And so <laughs> I'm I'm looking, looking, can't find him. And all of a sudden, I look like 30 yards up the left, uh, up to the left on the hill, and uh, and I see this, uh, I see see this buck standing there, like he's he's trying to walk up the hill, and uh, I was like, what's going on? Like I just put two perfect shots on this buck, so I hop down on the gun, and uh, at this point, I'm like kind of flustered this is my first solo hunt and i was like like what the heck so get back on the gun forgot to put my dope back in the gun and he's hard quartering away so like i just need to get another bullet in him shoot and like this is one of those situations where it's like you hope it never happens but you know stuff happens and shoot and i ended up i hit him literally in like the elbow of his back leg it hit him in the knee. I was like, gosh, damn it. Got myself calmed down, put the dope back in the gun, shot him one more time, dumped him. I was like, okay, like there's no way he's still alive. Sure enough, that last shot, it, like he was expired. I got up to him, and I'm not kidding you, all three of my bullets were within a two and a half inch circle in his shoulder, like shoulder double lung. My and that gosh. buck lived for a solid probably 15 minutes before he, he finally expired. Like when I opened him up, that front quarter was just, just, just toast. Lungs were soup, and I have still have no clue how that buck took so much and just kept going. But like, and I'm sure it happens with whitetail too. Um, but I mean, they they'll just take hit after hit after hit and and keep going. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the deer, you got to imagine deer in the west are stronger because they're running up and down mountains. But, yeah, whitetails here in the Midwest, yeah, obviously I mean, they're tough too. It's like tough stuff that they live in. I get the elk, though. When you jump up to the elk and obviously moose, like everything changes. I had one in Colorado where I shot and nothing happened. It was like a herd of 12 uh, cows, a couple of raghorns, and then this 6 by 7 and I shoot, nothing happens. Uh, okay. Like, not none of the elk move. I reload, shoot again, and now all of the cows start scattering, and a calf walks in front of the bull I'm going to shoot a little bit lower, so its head is right in front of the heart of my bull and just stops there. And so now I can't shoot. And so I'm just staring, and, and the bull's not moving. He's just looking around. And it's a far shot. I'm like, man, I'm not this bad of a shot. Reload. Finally, the cow steps off or the calf steps off. I shoot again. He's still standing there. So I get a fourth shell. I shoot a last time. And I'm just like, I can't. I'm like, now I'm like, okay, where did I hit him? Like, where is he bleeding out of? And all of a sudden, he just tips over. He just stood there yeah. for probably two minutes while this whole thing happened because that cow stood there for a long time in my way and then just didn't even flinch, and and then Allison just tipped over and died. Yeah, that's – I mean, it's the same thing. The first uh, first animal Caleb and I killed together, we doubled up on – we had uh, cow elk tag in Colorado, and Caleb shoots the lead cow, and same exact thing, the cow that I ended up shooting – walked right in front of her and just just stood there so Caleb couldn't shoot his cow again and then finally she tumbled down the hill and I got on the gun and, and shot the other cow but I mean it was probably I don't know two minutes of then like Caleb made a long shot and that cow just stood there like oh this is you know all in the day's work yeah that's that's wild they're, they are tough. They're super tough. I had one last question I wanted to ask you guys before we wrap up here because we're coming up on an hour and you guys are probably ready to go find some Boone or Bucks anyway. But you guys went on a caribou hunt 
and it was obviously a successful hunt. I see the pictures, but the picture that I really like is what kind of vehicle were you guys bombing around on on this caribou hunt? Because I'm looking at what looks like the back of some hatchback with two caribou in the back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, uh, we are notorious for our hunting vehicles. Yeah, we're uh, we're all about the hatchback life. Um, I have since moved out of the hatchback world, um, but that was a Subaru Impreza hatchback. And, the, and just for context, we're currently hunting out of a Subaru Crosstrek right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Subaru, if you want to sponsor us, give us a shout. Um. <laughs> But yeah, we, uh, so that was actually like one of the most run and gun hunts of probably either of our lives. They, um, helping Caleb's dad on a doll sheep hunt, got back from the doll sheep hunt, um, and we came home early because it wasn't going great. Yeah, we just weren't finding legal rams, so got home early. I still had like, before I flew out of Alaska, and uh, Caleb was like, "Dude, like, there's probably a caribou hunt going on somewhere. Like, you wanna, you wanna go hunt caribou?" And I was like, "Uh, is a fifty pound chicken big? Yeah, I wanna go hunt caribou." Um, so ended up found this this unit. It was a, a resident only unit, so Caleb got the tags. But I was like, "Dude, feel like just to even be there, it's worth it." Um, and they ended up they increased tag numbers and turned it into an any caribou unit so caleb had two tags and uh and he could shoot any caribou so by i don't know five six o'clock that night we had the car loaded down oh subaru impressive yep subaru impressive um oh whatever hours from anchorage to fairbanks made a pit stop in fairbanks um Slept in a gas station, gas station parking lot. Woke up at like I don't know 5 a.m. There was a dude in the gas station parking lot with two stud bulls in the back of his pickup. So we were talking to him, and super nice guy. He literally gave us a pin to the exact spot that he shot him, and he was like, "Yeah, this is where we found the most caribou. Like, go get them, boys." Um. So whoever that fine gentleman is, thank you. Um. But yeah, so we ended up, got out there, and uh, by 3 p.m. that day, Caleb had killed two caribou, and uh, Alaska has, like, some of the strictest wanton waste laws, so each of us had a, an entire caribou in our pack. We were, I don't know, probably mile, maybe mile and a half from, from the car. Um, after we'd already driven it up the river. Yeah, so we, we we pull up to this river that we had to cross, and there was a guy stopped at it in his Tacoma. And he was like, yeah, boys, like, I, I don't know. I, I'm just kind of worried. And So I had my boots and my gators on, and I told Caleb, I was like, oh, I'm going to walk out real quick to see what the river looks like. Probably, I don't know, fishing. But, like, you basically got six inches of clearance. Um, if that, and I looked at Caleb, I said, "Yeah, just don't slow down." And uh, we ended up we got the Impreza across three rivers. Um, may or may not have irreparably damaged the front bumper, but uh, we had two caribou in an Impreza. That's incredible. And you, I mean, obviously you shot them nearby because you have one picture with both bulls. But you said you. Like, each of you packed out an entire caribou in one pass? Yeah, I was the heaviest pack I've ever had. A caribou is bigger than, like, a mule deer, right? Uh, they're not massive. They're, like, a big mule deer. Oh. Yeah, like, those bulls were probably 350 pounds on the hoof. Okay. Maybe 400. So you're probably getting, like, 30% of that, so like a 120-pound pack out. Say, say that one more time. You're probably getting like a 30% meat off of a carrot. Like a, any wild animal is usually like 30% meat. 
Yes, but greater in Alaska because you're taking rib meat, neck meat, backstrap, tenderloin, quarters. Like you are taking everything. Yeah, and the heads too. That that's not factored in. So yeah, like you're probably 150, 175, maybe even 200 pound pack out. That's a heavy load. Yeah, it was uh, it was not fun and like hundreds. Caleb is Caleb's like six one, six two. Um, so Caleb step much higher than I do when he's walking and when you're walking in the tundra you're thinking three inches at least with every single step it's like walking on a sponge so the ground may look flat like the terrain may not look bad um but like if I were to compare an Alaska mile to a lower 48 mile like one Alaska mile is like two and a half three lower 48 mile oh yeah that well, the only thing I'm wondering is, like, why didn't you guys just do two trips? Because uh, we're not the brightest. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, it was a long day. <laughs> yeah, uh, elevator doesn't quite make it to the top floor. We <laughs> say that. That makes sense. Okay, so in one day you had two caribou loaded up. Did your Impreza smell like caribou for, like, a month after that? It smelled so bad. <laughs> Because you guys just packed it all in the back seat or the back hatch, right? Yep. yep. That's incredible. It makes yeah, no, me—it uh, makes me want to do a caribou hunt, but I'm gonna bring a pickup. Yeah, probably, uh, probably a good idea. It's real popular for guys coming up to rent like a U-Haul van. I've heard that because they're the same price; like they're cheaper than a car. Oh, yeah, they're way cheaper than a rental car in Alaska. Interesting. Awesome. Well, guys, it's been a great podcast. I appreciate both of you guys having the time to, to hop on, uh, take some time out of your scouting, and um, share some of your crazy stories. I didn't, I did not think this was going to turn into an Alaska podcast, but I'm glad it did. <laughs> yeah. No, if, uh, if you want to, if you want to do another one, go over more like antelope stuff. Um, more like lower 48 stuff just let me know and we'd be happy to chat with you again awesome yeah i'll have to do that maybe we'll do like a antelope podcast later uh later in the 2024 i guess right before antelope season so yeah absolutely well awesome well thank you both once again for being here and thank you for listening folks